Hello and welcome to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Greg Rogan with the Houston Chronicle, joined by a very special guest I've been wanting to get on the podcast since we launched it, Mike Meltzer, longtime Houston sports radio host. And Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, are you a lawyer who moonlights as a radio host or are you a radio host who moonlights as a lawyer these days? I would say it really depends on the the week or the day. So sometimes it feels like it's one, sometimes it feels like it flips to the other. It really kind of depends on the day. That is a very interesting career change. We're gonna ha- we'll have to talk about that later. But fair reason I brought you on board. I I always enjoy our chats, whether they're by text message or in person. Back in the pre COVID days, this is a big week for Houston sports. We've got the NFL draft. It's finally here. It seemed like a date that was on far away on the calendar for months and months and. Now we're down to just a couple days away. So we'll start with the NFL draft. And I wanted to ask, when I look at this draft, how pivotal is it for the Texans this year? Or is it really about 2023 or 2024 with this team when they know more about their quarterback situation? So I think it, I think both are pivotal, right, Greg? I think that the draft is pivotal to set the foundation of the team. But there's no real pressure to win in 2022. I think it's more about 2023, 2024, as far as actual expectations to do anything. Um, But when you have the amount of draft capital they have with whatever it is, like four or five picks in the top 100, the two first round picks, um, just all the selections they have, they need to hit on these picks. And I don't know that they need, you know, superstar players, which may not be easily available in this draft, but like. I would put it this way, Greg. I would trade this roster for any roster in the NFL, every other one. That's the best way I can put it. And I don't know if people have put it in those terms, but if you ask me like, hey, would you trade it for the Jets or the Panthers or the Falcons? I would trade Houston's roster for anybody else. That is why Thursday, Friday, and Saturday are so important. Is there anything they can do in the draft this week to be anything more than a four to six win team? In 2022? Boy, that's a good question. I mean, so much of that comes down to luck in close games. Um, I guess my immediate thing would be if they get fortunate with maybe a pass rusher and a receiver who can help out Davis Mills, that's that's the that's the first thing I can I can think of. But you know, if they somehow won if, if they won more than six games, I think it'd be partially due to luck and partially due to rookie contributions. So, like, I, I guess so. <laughs> I guess literally they could. Yes, literally. As we sit here on Tuesday, what is the likelihood of the Texans making picks at both 3 and 13? Or is it more likely that they trade up or down with the 13th pick? I would say picking at 3 is like 98%. Because I just don't think there's, there's any place to move down. And Casario has telegraphed that. Uh, At 13, I think it's more of a 50-50 proposition. You're hearing a bunch of rumblings this week about the Texans liking Garrett Wilson from Ohio State. So if they really like one of these receivers, you know, do they think about maybe moving up the board just a couple of spots to secure they get their guy versus waiting to see who falls to 13? Now, they could also do the reverse. You know, what I'm monitoring is where do the quarterbacks go in this first round? Everybody's looking at that. And... The more rumors that come out, it certainly seems like, all right, Carolina probably not taking a quarterback, Atlanta probably taking a receiver or a corner, Seattle probably not taking a quarterback. So then you get to these spots, Greg, the Jets, Washington, Minnesota, 
the Texans, then the Ravens, the Eagles. Like, none of these teams need quarterbacks, or they're not going to take these kind of quarterbacks in this draft. I think the team that is looking for a quarterback is Pittsburgh. So is there a move down the board from, let's say, 13 to 20 if they really want Malik Willis? Or does somebody want to move up for Kenny Pickett? So I would say if they move up, it's probably for a receiver or maybe a corner. If they move down, you know, I could I see a scenario where they move down with, let's say, Pittsburgh? Possible. What is a dream scenario for the Texans at number three? That somehow Aiden Hutchinson gets passed up by the Jaguars and Lions? Yeah, I think that's a dream scenario. Um, otherwise, I think the guys that they expect to be on the board will be. You're certainly getting a lot of rumblings that Trevon Walker is going to go number one. But man, all the ac- accounts, Greg, indicate that if that happens, then the Lions will take maybe like a minute or two of their allotted time and just race up the card for Aiden Hutchinson. But I, I would say that would be the dream if Hutchinson somehow you know, slipped to number three and they could take him, which was something that would be completely, completely unexpected for the last uh, couple of months. Th- that would be the dream scenario. I just don't see how it's realistic. What do you make of the situation in Jacksonville? Who's really controlling that? Is that Trent Baalke? How much is it Doug Peterson? How much of it is Shad Khan? Because, I mean, obviously last year was Trevor Lawrence. He's a consensus number one. There's no doubt about who they're going to take. But this year, I, I just, I can't, I don't have a grasp on who's really in charge in Jacksonville. Feels to me like Balky is in charge, especially if the reports turn out to be correct and Trevon Walker's the pick, because what everybody is hearing, Greg, is, you know, Shot Khan might want Aiden Hutchinson. And Doug Peterson is partial to, to an offensive lineman because when he won the Super Bowl with Philly, they had the best offensive line in football when they had Jason Kelsey, Lane Johnson, Jason Peters, all those guys. Uh, but Balky is somebody who always bets on traits, athleticism, and he really likes what Trevon Walker brings to the table. So I think we find out Thursday night who's really got the juice. And, you know, if you're going to keep a GM very controversially like they did, then I guess maybe you double down and say, if I'm going to keep this guy, then let's go with his recommendation. Uh, but it certainly sounds like, like I would say, it's not a great sign for Jacksonville that I am saying all this, that that it is out there publicly that the owner might want one guy, the head coach want, might want another, and the GM wants somebody else. Whereas with Houston, we have not really heard that at all. That's very true. I know you, you've said that you would trade the Texans roster for any roster in the NFL right now. Yep. But what reason should Texans fans have to be optimistic at this time? I think that you know, I, I just get this feeling that things have calmed down, um, that you no longer have somebody who's unqualified to be a coach in David Cully, with all due respect to him. That, and I don't know that Lovey, how great he's going to be, but Lovey Smith has a real resume. He's been a head coach in multiple stops. Um, he's a professional communicator, which I think really helps them because they have many issues in that area. And I, I just get the feeling of like, okay, after everything that's been kind of white hot or red hot or whatever the last year, year and a half, the things have kind of like calmed down and nationally people are like, we don't really know what to make of the Texans. We have no idea what they're going to do, but at least things are not like as crazy as they seem to be. And so they can kind of operate. I would say they can kind of operate in silence. They can kind of operate in like the noon uh, CBS window every single Sunday, you know, with Andrew Catalan or Spiro Ditas or anybody else. There's going to be no real pressure. Uh, They can start Davis Mills and kind of see what happens. And Nick Casario did have what appears to be 
in 2021, a successful draft, and we'll see if he can parlay that in 2022. They're going to bring in a lot more a lot more young players, and they need to hit on those guys. So I, I would say that that would be the, the optimism, that you finally cashed in the Deshaun Watson chip, and now you have, for the first time since 2019, a genuine ability to bring in young players who are good. You, know, you mentioned the rookies for the Texans in 2021. Were they that good, or were we just surprised at seeing rookies actually getting snaps here? Because that was like a Bill O'Brien thing. He seemed like he couldn't stand rookies. They really had to earn their keep with him. And from what I can recall, the only rookies who ever did anything under Bill O'Brien were probably Deshaun Watson and Justin Reed. Otherwise, very few contributions from players during their rookie years. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think that they necessarily drafted any real standouts. Um, Nico Collins, we'll see. Like, is he a starting NFL receiver? Roy Lopez looks like he's a rotational defensive lineman. Um, you look at, I mean, I'm just kind of looking at the depth chart here. Uh, Garrett Wallow showed some signs late. Uh, Brevin Jordan, I think has some upside. It, it, it just seemed like Nick Casario, given his limitations with draft capital last year, maybe maximize what he could do. And I don't think any of these players, maybe Mills is really the, the big question mark are going to be part of like the inner core of the Texans moving forward. But if they get some valuable contributors, maybe one or two of these guys signs a second contract, then I would say that's a pretty reasonable, promising draft given the limitations. And I I will say that I did not like the draft pick of Davis Mills last year because I thought, man, this is really forcing the issue. Um, This is going to end up as a wasted pick. And I've already been proven wrong on that. Even with one year in, the fact that Mills showed improvements compared to the other rookie quarterbacks fared decently well, and now is going to start this year, I think has already proven to be at least a valuable you know, roll of the dice as a third-round pick. See, I always liked that old Packers Ron Wolf model of drafting a quarterback every year in the mid to late rounds just to see what you have. You can develop a backup, and maybe you can cash him into another team that needs a quarterback and get some you know, draft capital in return. So I didn't necessarily have a problem with the Mills pick in that regard, and it always surprised me that they never they never drafted quarterbacks in the years before that. Like there was Tom Savage in 2014, there's Watson in 2017. Yep. I can't remember them drafting any other quarterbacks just to like have his camp arms Yates. or something. But he yeah, was like 2011, right? Yep. Late. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, and I'm curious if Casario does it this year, right? Because they have Mills, he's clearly going to be got the guy this year, and it's obviously set up to be one of those situations where. All right, let's see what happens with Davis Mills. Let's see how bad they are. Are they in a position to take one of the top quarterbacks next year? Do they think about taking a swing with a fourth-round pick, a fifth-round pick, another on another guy? Uh, I, I'm kind of with you. I I don't mind that. I mean, some people don't love the idea of quarterback competitions or like what kind of opportunity do you really get? But look at the Texans quarterback situation now behind Davis Mills. I don't know if Jeff Driscoll is an NFL quarterback. And, you know, Kyle Allen, okay, I I guess he's an okay backup, but I wouldn't mind it if they took another swing at somebody in the mid-rounds here. Very good. Look, Kyle Allen, he's one of those many forgettable quarterbacks from 2018 to 19 who found a way to beat the Texans during the regular season, you know. Yes. I think, uh, who was the guy in in Tennessee that did it that one year? Was was Blaine Gabbert in for a Mariota one year? Yeah, Gabbert. That was a bad one. And then Brandon Allen, remember Cincinnati in 2020 when he 
He threw for like, you know, 375 yards or something like that. Yes, with Joe Burrow after he was knocked out for the season. So yes. let's let's take like a little bit of a 30,000-foot view of the Texans. Is there anything we can take away from Nick Casario's tenure as GM 15, 15 months in? Or does this guy just – he just needs a little more runway considering how bad of a situation he, he inherited, especially with the franchise QB being alienated pretty much as soon as he arrived in Houston. Yeah, I think we clearly need more of a runway because now he gets to start using really valuable picks. Number three, number 13, the second round picks, what happens next year. Um, candidly, Greg, I have not been a fan of Nick Casario's first two off seasons. Uh, I don't think they've made a whole lot of sense. And, you know, I, I see Nick Casario getting credit for clearing the Texans cap situation, which makes no sense to me. They don't have a lot of talent and they traded Deshaun Watson. Like if we're going to give him credit for clearing their cap situation, you and I could do that. Uh, that that's simple. That that's basic accounting. That's like you know looking at like a simple Excel spreadsheet and figuring out you know what's going to happen moving forward. Um, I didn't like a lot of the offseason moves last year, bringing in you know signing twenty five guys when you end up keeping only a couple of them. Uh, this year, uh, the approach was not quite that extensive, but I wasn't super impressed by what they did in free agency and. You know, I look at just certain things. It's like they signed A.J. Can, They re-signed Justin Britt. Um, I, I don't know why they do some of these things. And it's not anything that's going to kill them long term or is any significant investment. But I would just like to see them, you know, pick up guys with maybe higher upside uh, in free agency. So I, I candidly have not loved what Casario has done through his first two free agencies. I don't know how much it matters because the team is not good, but because the team is not good, it, it makes me kind of wonder like what he's thinking with his approach to free agency. Did he lose credibility with these coaching searches? I mean, first ending up with David Culley and then this whole convoluted thing where it looks like Josh McCown is a front runner to be the coach. Then all of a sudden it's a 180 and Lovey Smith is your coach, this retread who'd been on staff the whole time. I don't think that Nick has picked the coaches, honestly. I mean, I can't prove that to you, Greg, but I don't think Nick Casario had much to do with hiring David Culley. I think that was something that, that was from up high. And I don't think he had much to do with hiring Lovey Smith, especially when you look at Nick Casario's comments about Lovey at the season-ending news conference in like early January, where he wasn't exactly like effusive in his praise about Lovey's performance as defensive coordinator. Now, it sounds to me like Nick, I mean, I, it, it, there's clearly like respect that goes between him and Lovey Smith. But I, you know, reading between the lines, it feels like what Nick wanted to do was maybe hire Jonathan Gannon from the Eagles. They couldn't do that, I guess. And other people in the building maybe wanted Josh McCown. That couldn't happen. And so they basically settle on this compromise of Lovey Smith. But unequivocally, They've had two coaching searches in Nick Casario's time. I personally do not believe that he has picked these two head coaches. It's a very interesting theory. Um, let's take a look at how we got here to this point with the Texans. So much ink has been spilled over Bill O'Brien's tenure, running personnel, later on as GM. The moves, I think we can agree, by and large, they were terrible. Yep. Was the biggest problem with O'Brien, he just didn't know how to properly manage assets and by that, I mean like Jadavian Clowney. You want to trade Jadavian Clowney, that's fine. Yep. But you trade Jadavian Clowney before the franchise tag deadline when he can still sign a long-term deal somewhere else and your options aren't limited. Or 
I think you've mentioned this before. You want to trade for Laramie Tunsil. You do that at the draft in 2019 when you have cost certainty with what you're going to give up. Yes. Not, not doing that on the eve of the regular season and where you end up paying through the nose. Is that the biggest problem with Will O'Brien? He was just thinking too much about the now instead yes. of the big picture and the asset management? 100%. I just thought that Bill, uh, Greg, he had, Bill O'Brien had no ability to really value assets properly, which you just have to, to to succeed in the NFL if you have any role in personnel. And with the Clowney thing, as you mentioned, if they were not going to re-sign Clowney to a big long-term deal, fine. Then what you need to do is to trade him before the draft or before free agency. Like I, I just, I, I just think this is all really basic stuff. The Seahawks that offseason, they traded a similar player in Frank Clark, and they got you know a first-round pick, uh, a second-round pick, and they swapped three. So they got a lot for Frank Clark, and compare that to, to what the Texans didn't get for Clowney in August. I, I, I just... I know football is hard, and these guys have forgotten more about it than I know, but it is just mystifying to me looking at it where you come out of the 2018 season, and this is when they have the slow start, they win a lot of games in a row, they lose to Indianapolis in fairly embarrassing fashion in the postseason, but you have a first-round pick, and it's like, all right, in January, what are we going to do? In February, what are we going to do? If we need a left tackle, what's the big plan here? What are we going to do with Clowney? None of these things came up by surprise. They had a left tackle avoid that whole season. And the Clowney thing was going to be a decision that whole year. So to me, if you wanted to trade for Laramie Tunsil, fine. You make that decision in January or February, and you do all of your negotiating then. To me, the fact that they signed Matt Khalil, gave him real money, and pretended like he was going to be the left tackle throughout free agency, throughout uh, the training camp, I should say, and then you turn around and desperately trade for Laramie Tunsil. Like, wh- what is your planning the whole time? I mean, you need to make these decisions in third in January and February. You can't make, you cannot run a successful NFL team if you're just running it like day by day. You have to have some kind of you know, year-to-year, long-term horizon about what you're investing in and what the roster is supposed to be built like. I think a lot, a guy that doesn't get talked about a lot, Brian Gain, the year yes. he was in charge of the Texans, he was there for the 2018 season, fired, you know, a little, little after the 2019 draft. To me, it just seems that that year with Brian Gain, you had lost opportunities to build around a franchise QB who was on his rookie deal had a lot of other good players on the team. DeAndre Hopkins, J.J. Watt was back healthy. Clowney, Tyron Matthew was there that year. And it, to me, that was a year you go all in, you know? And it just seemed like they were just signing guys to like one-year contracts and they weren't going out and trying to get that left tackle. They were Julian Davenport out there yep. as the left tackle that season. To me, that just seemed like a huge missed opportunity when like you look at the Seahawks with Russell Wilson. They went all in early in his contract when they realized what they had. Yep. The Rams, even with Jared Goff, they went all in. They made a Super Bowl. It just seems like the Texans, they just got way too conservative that year with Brian Gain running teams, running things. And then Bill O'Brien was in the, went in the opposite direction, you know, the next yes. year. But it seemed like there's some happy medium to be found there. Hunter, yeah, I totally I think there, there has to be a happy medium. And I, I guess there was probably frustration looking at, the 2019 offseason and the fact that they lost Tyron Matthew, they lost Kareem Jackson. And I guess there seems to be like, if you talk to people, there's frustration that 
they weren't able to like maneuver around the draft like some in the building may have wanted to in 19. They draft Titus Howard in the first round, fine. you know. But then it's Lonnie Johnson, Max Sharp, and Holly Waring. That's like a big gaping hole when you had to get some contributing players. And so I think there was a there was frustration in the building. It, it seems to me for because Gain was not able to be aggressive enough uh, as a general manager. But yeah, it's it, it's the whole thing has been very bizarre. Going from Rick to Brian Gain for the year, then no GM for essentially you know a two year period, and then you bring in Nick Casario, but then Deshaun Watson wants out. Um, I mean, since Cal McNair has taken over, like it has not been a stable organization. Now, maybe they have reached their level of stability with Casario and Lovey Smith, but that obviously remains to be seen. How different is Texans history if they're able to hire Nick Casario when they, after they fired Brian Gain before that whole tampering stuff? That to me is a great question because, you know, if that happens, I feel like he would have managed the Clowney and Tunzel situations much better. I mean, like I, I, I heard that this, the second round pick they gave up in the Tunsil deal was one they just kind of like threw in. And that ended up being a high second round pick. Um, and like, I just, a lot of this could be changed if they, like imagine Greg, if they were able to do what I suggested with Tunsil and do it way earlier. And even if they went four and 12 in 2020, if they had kept the number three overall pick, We'll see what happens with Trey Lance and these guys. But like they would have been able to quickly theoretically move on from Deshaun by taking one of those quarterbacks and they could have turned the page like super quickly. Um, and and you the big question that you would wonder is like if a professional like Nick Casario around, would they have had the same kind of falling out with Deshaun Watson as they did? Would they have given him a no trade clause? <laughs> yeah. Would they have given him a no trade clause? I, I don't know. I mean, Russell Wilson, I think Russell Wilson had a no trade clause as well. Um, and I know there are a whole a lot of theories about like what Deshaun wanted to do even when he signed that deal. But I just think if you had somebody, a normal football executive at the time, it certainly couldn't hurt, especially given what has happened since. You mentioned Tell McNair. So I, w- I want to pivot to a general Houston sports topic. Yes. If we did approval ratings for Houston sports owners like we do for politicians, who would have the biggest approval rating? Who would have the worst? And what would those uh, per, what would those numbers be percentage wise? So I would say Jim Crane would have the highest, although probably lower since a lot of people are down on him not resigning Carlos Correa. But I would say it would be over. I, I, I would say it would be over fifty percent. Would you think? Like it's got to be over fifty. I'd say high forties, low fifties. Okay. Yeah, somewhere around there. Uh, then we'll get to like what are typical like presidential approval ratings, which like no matter who's in office, any party, it's going to be pretty low. Um, so I would say, so Tillman Fertitta, it, pro- it probably doesn't have like a super high approval rating, but he hasn't really, because the the Rockets are in such a rebuild, he hasn't really had to do anything of real substance in a while. Um, so Tillman's kind of hard to peg. And I would say Cal McNair has a pretty low approval rating just in the sense of like, how many people would be answering that survey and say, yeah, we really approve of what Cal has done as the owner of the Texans? Like, what what evidence would you be pointing to to say, yes, yeah, this has been wonderful since 2019? That That's a good point. I can't think of one thing, really. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, what would it be, like 15%, 20%, 10 
somewhere there. There's always the contrarians. So you're probably yes. you're probably 15 to 20 percent, maybe. They got a bunch of contrarians on Twitter. So there is that. I know that that's a pet peeve of yours. But we won't necessarily go into that. But, uh, yes. Yes. Big pet peeve. All right. I want to talk to you a little bit about sports radio. I find it to be a fascinating topic. You do. Yes. You've done Houston sports radio. You've done national sports radio, Mad Dog Radio on Sirius XM. You know, Tip O'Neill, the old speaker of the house, he had a phrase, it's, all politics are local. Yep. Is, is the same true for sports radio? I mean, is the best sports radio local sports radio? Usually, yes. Uh, it's, I, I just think it, it's really hard sometimes to do, to do it nationally and to do it well in a way that connects with the audience as much as the big local radio hosts when you're in it every single day. You're talking about the same topics every single day, and it, it, it's hard. It's harder nationally because you're trying to figure out like you know what's really resonating with people. And you do a lot of football like you would do locally in almost every single market. Um, but it, it there is an element to like you're kind of like a mile wide, an inch deep. Like I think the NBA playoffs now are a good example in that. I mean, Greg, we have eight first round NBA series going on. Like I just think it's a lot to ask the sports fan to track eight different series, right? So when I'm on Mad Dog Sports Radio now, like we're going to talk about the big topics, the Nets crash out of the postseason, other disappointments, successes. But like, I I wonder like how many people are actually watching all of these games because you have, you know, four games on every Saturday and Sunday. You got three games on every single night, essentially. So it's kind of a lot to ask. Whereas in local radio, people are watching the Astros every single night. They're, They're plugged in on the Rockets. People... Even if they're checked out, they're still kind of interested in what the Texans are doing. And then, you know, during the season, there's a whole lot of interest. So nationally, at times, it can be hard to figure out, like, what are people truly interested in that brings in the most amount of people, the biggest tent, if you will. So what, was, what would you say your most memorable day on the air in Houston radio was? <laughs> Look at all the, all the years you worked here. God, there are a couple. I mean, I would say the uh, the radio row fight would be one in Minneapolis with with Seth and Josh. Um, when I went off on Seth, when we were talking about the Osuna trade uh, in the summer of 2018, would be one. Um, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of some others. You know, being on the air after the Astros won the World Series. Um, honestly, being on the air, we, we were at like a golf course the day after the Rockets had the great comeback against the uh, Clippers in Game Six was one that stands out. I think we had like Brian Cushing on like that next day. That was a fun show to do. Um, I remember doing, you know, we used to have a lot of these Verizon remotes back in the early 2010s. And the Texans had a lot of star power then. So like doing shows where we'd have, you know, Andre Johnson, um, Cushing, Dwayne Brown, you know, Jonathan Joseph, those kind of guys. Um, but probably the two, I would say the two <laughs> that stand out the most would be Radio Row and me and Seth <laughs> on the uh, Osuna trade. That, would that be the unbearable segment? Yeah, the unbearable segment. I think right. some people, I think some people think I hate Seth, which is like couldn't be further from the truth. But, you know, when it comes to radio, I've never been married, but I imagine. Being married is at least somewhat similar to doing a radio show every single day in that, you know, you're just like so used to the other person and things that might not bother 
the normal person, like you get so used to certain things that they'll become like pet peeves when you're in that environment every single day. You picked a pretty good era to be in Houston sports radio. It's rare, it's rarely been dull here. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, and I I haven't even had the chance, at least locally, to, to really talk about things that have happened since, like you know, the Astro sign stealing scandal, you know, a lot of the Deshaun stuff that has happened over the last year. Uh, but yes, I mean, I was on full time from 2010 to 19, so we had the Texans make the playoffs for the first time, and everything that's happened since the Watt era, Watson. The Astros, the rebuild, the rise, the championship, uh, the Rockets, I would say arguably like the second best era that they've had as a franchise, arguably. Um, So it was definitely interesting, no doubt. That's for sure. So I'm curious, how did you decide to become a lawyer? Was that a longtime goal or did something steer you in that direction when you were working in radio? So nothing specific. Um, I, I get this question a lot. I... You know, I made the decision. I, I, I like school, which I know is kind of crazy. And so I, I want. I, I felt like the way my mind works and the way I think. I'm like, you know, trying law school might be interesting. Um, and I didn't really have anything else going on at the time. I started in the fall of 2015 at the University of Houston Law Center, and I thought, like, I'm doing a midday show, which is obviously a, a big investment. But like, I, I think I can do this. I mean, other people have full-time jobs when they're like nine to five and going to school at night. And so I, I just thought to myself, I, I picked up a book at one of the libraries in Houston. And it was like, I think I flipped to a page, Greg, where it was like somebody was debating whether to get a degree or something. And it and the person's husband was like, you know, the time is going to pass. The four years will pass or the three years and the five years. And the question is, will you get this degree or will you not? Like the time will pass. And so I was like, you know what? Let me give this a shot. And when I started, I was I was like on a semester to semester basis mentally. I was like, let me do one, and then let me get through the first year. And I kind of got used to it. And I, I really didn't have any any grand plans um, with the law degree specifically. Um, but then, as, as it turns out, you know, I get let go summer of 2019. I take the Texas bar exam, and then I got an opportunity with a firm that I work for now. And I've still been able to do a pretty good amount of radio stuff. And so I've kind of kept my hand in both things ever since. I wanted to ask you about the end of your time in Houston sports radio. To me, it seems like it's such a hard medium to work in because you can often be subject to the whims of a program director. You know, you're trying to get established in a market. What would your advice be to people that are trying to go into sports radio in, in these local markets? I think the I whenever I talk to people, I, I I'm very big on research. You know, if you want to do something, I think you have to know the industry, right? Like if you want to be a writer and you're in Houston, like you should know that Greg Rajan is an editor for the sports section in the Chronicle. You should know about this podcast. You should know that Brooks Kubina is now the main Texans writer and that Jonathan Fagan covers the Rockets, right? Like you, you should know, you, you should have a sense of the lay of the land, just the, the fundamental research. Because um, sometimes I, I talk to people and like they won't have a full understanding of the jobs, like who holds these jobs. Um, it's obviously not an easy business, but I mean, there are sports radio stations in every market, right? And so you can connect with these people. And I think the, the good thing about these days is so many people have podcasts, right? And I'm 36, 
So I'm not like, you know, oh, I'm not like older, but even when I was in college or certainly high school, there weren't the same kind of opportunities that people have now to where they can do a podcast, they can do YouTube. And I think the big thing for a radio host is you have to find your own voice. And that takes time. It takes reps. It takes doing shows in a room with nobody else where you're like staring at a wall. And it really takes years to develop and to figure out who am I talking to? Like, what is my voice? Like, I'm sure it takes a writer a long time to figure out what is my voice? What is the structure that I want to write with? Um, what's the best way for me to find sources, develop stories? Um, you know, it, it's a challenging business, but if you want to do it, you can absolutely work in it. It's, I, I would say it's, it's easier than, let's say, being an actor in Hollywood. I'll put it that way. <laughs> I'll, take my, I'll take my chances with that then. Um, Mike Meltzer, <laughs> attorney, sports radio host. Always can find good takes on your Twitter account at Mike Meltzer. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, will you be on the air during the NFL draft this week? I will not be on the air during the draft, thankfully. Um, <laughs> I will not be in the air. I will just be consuming it from home. I'm really looking forward to, to watching it, and I'm actually glad that I can consume it as a fan. I'm not used to the Texans having a first-round pick. It's been a few years. I'll have to uh, be it. I'm not used to like watching the draft on Thursday night. Usually I tune in Friday or Saturday, see who they're going to yes. get. So. There's a lot of intrigue, which is good for you. It's good for you guys. Very true. Well, Mike, thanks very much. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Texas Sports Nation podcast. For much more on Houston sports, go to HoustonChronicle.com slash sports.